Leia Elson, science. What do you know about it? She, uh, the passion she has for science is absolutely incredible. She is a science communicator. She breaks down, dumbs down science for us, for people like myself who don't understand it well. She has a great book. There are no stupid questions. I opened the conversation with, do bees poop honey? Do you know the answer? She has great videos on her social media, on TikTok and Instagram. We talk about a bunch of them that I found interesting. Fungal mycea, the network that's communicating all plant life. We talk about uh, Africa breaking apart, the deep scattered layer of the ocean, how they're doing, how they did sonar, and it would actually come back with bad readings. It would be a lot more shallow than the actual depth of the ocean. They had to figure that out. Uh, the How does the sun stay ignited? We talk about DNA. Fascinating background. I mean, she completely you know, by herself, uh, public schools. She got into Harvard. She did a USC post. Uh, fascinating woman, loves science, and the passion is there, and she's sharing it with everyone. What motivates her and what how she measures success is absolutely delightful and encouraging and how she views discipline too, you'll see. And uh, it was a great conversation. It went by so quickly. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. I would Leah Elson. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Joey Pins. People ask me, how did I lose 130 pounds? The quick answer is always discipline. I started my business, wasn't paying attention to my health, was eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic, I have hypertension. I knew something had to change, discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life, in your faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society? Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration to talk to you. Leah Elson, thank you so much for your time today. So excited to talk to you. Do bees poop honey? <laughs> they do not. They puke honey, actually, <laughs> more technically. And why is that? Why do people think they poop? I guess it's the same thing with cows, right? People um, think that they're you know responsible for, well, they are responsible for a lot of the bad, but they don't actually poop it. They actually burp it. Uh, cows for meth. Are you talking about methane yes. emissions? Yes. I've heard that it's actually cow farts scientifically, uh. but, um, it could be burps as well. I'm not sure. I know that they have a very elegant digestive system. So I believe they have multiple stomachs from what I understand. And of course, this is one of the questions that you answer in your book about the bees pooping honey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is a science communicator? 
A science communicator is somebody who acts as a liaison between the public and heavy sciences. Uh, not everybody is fortunate enough to be educated enough to digest a lot of the heavy sciences, but is nonetheless very important. And so science communicators like myself, we help to break down the big, scary world of science into digestible pieces to help the general public understand the world around them. Yeah, I'm familiar with heavy sciences. I've never heard that term. Sure. We, um, I think now you have soft sciences and this tends to be things like social sciences, anthropology, you know, things of that uh, nature. And then you have what we call heavy or hard sciences, which is like chemistry, physics, biology, uh, sort of the, the traditional STEM fields. Wow. That makes, that makes real sense. And so, uh, tell us a story how you almost burned your place down by torching the, uh, curtain in the bathroom. Yes. So in my soiree as being a science communicator in the beginning, I was really just doing live demonstrations for the amusement of my friends. And I was demonstrating the principles of a dual phase rocket engine on my bathroom floor. And that flame is uh, quite hot as it comes out. And I torched, it was sort of like a hemp, dry hemp woven shower curtain. It went up in absolute flames and ended up in ashes. And I decided from that point forward that science goes outside. <laughs> In a less flammable capacity. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're you're you got such great content, right? So uh, um, I, I'm going through them. And I just just pierced by them. Let's start with this: the sun. How does it stay ignited? Mm, that's hydrogen fusion. And so the, the sun actually mashes hydrogen atoms, uh, four hydrogen atoms together, and that yields helium. Mm. And just the, the power of uh, being able to mash these atoms together is so extreme that there's actually a net loss of mass. When you mash all these atoms together, the resultant mass you would expect is slightly less, and that decrease in mass is released as energy. And that's heat and mm. radiation, et cetera. And um, actually, surprisingly, the, the photons that come from this this mashing together, this uh, atomic fusion, the inside of the sun is almost like a mirror because it's so dense and there's so much, you know, there's so much activity happening. So photons bounce around on the inside of the sun and sometimes it can take them up to 30,000 years to actually be released out into the world. They've just wow. been sort of pinballing around on the inside of the sun for a very long time. You think, I mean, I know we, we have solar panels now, but it's just, it seems to me that that technology has got, or the science perhaps got to get better where we can really harness a lot of the energy from the sun. It seems so powerful. Sure. I think a lot of it is going to be political in nature, right? There's a lot at stake in the fossil fuel industry and there are a lot mm -hmm. of very powerful parties. And, um, but also something that, that we could potentially harness is uh, hydro energy, right? It's just the, the power of, you know, waves and tides moving machinery and moving combines. And, you know, you can actually just harness the, the sheer power of the ocean potentially to generate power as well for coastal cities. Your great videos talking about the ocean is when they were leaky. Well, leaky oceans is one, but I was talking about the scattered layer of the ocean where they were trying to discover sonar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this deep scattering layer. And when they were using sonar to sort of map the bottom of the ocean, they found that it was far shallower than they expected. And it actually migrated slightly over the course of the day. And it turns out that there is something called the deep scattering layer. And it's just a mass of 
fish and marine life right. that live in this distinct layer and they migrate uh, as the sun moves across the sky, they migrate to and to and from the surface in sort of like a large vertical pattern. And they're so dense that sonar actually bounces off of it and it mm. gives sort of this false impression of a seafloor that's much shallower than it is. So, so cool. So cool. So your background, your, your, you're from California, you do undergrad, you go to Harvard, you go to USC. I mean, really well accomplished, uh, really working at the same time, right? Really fighting it all by yourself. I shouldn't say all by yourself, but just, I mean, you still have student loans to this day. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, you're, you're really kind of pounding the flesh there, Leah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, I have what I like to say is like a pathologic desire to excel. <laughs> so I've gone and done all of the things, but science is what I'm very passionate about. And so it's culminated in sort of my nine to five gig as a scientist and then my off hours science communication. So that's what we're talking about now. Yeah. And you do a really good job at it at, uh, um, besides the, the curtain incident, of course, but, of um, course. <laughs> <laughs> Another great thing is I learned is that I mean you go from such radical subjects. Like it's so cool. The Oort cloud. I just I had to watch it a couple times. So we are our solar system, our I don't want to say universe, is just in this type of a cloud with trillions of bodies, excuse me. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's uh the Oort cloud is it's hard to confirm, but it's highly suspected. And uh, we think that's where all of our comets come from, that they they get knocked loose and then they sort of careen towards the solar system, hopefully not too close to us. And uh, <laughs> they begin to sort of orbit the Earth. But but yeah, they, the Oort cloud is so far away that it's actually technically in what you would call interstellar space. But uh, sort of we're surrounded by this big, I call it like a big snow globe almost. Hmm. And speaking of an asteroid, you also talk about Bennu which has less than 1% chance of hitting us, but it, it could be pretty bad if it did. And they're plotting it out now and keeping an eye on it. It's great that they're doing that. Yeah, you know, we've reached a point in human history where, you know, not only are we aware of sort of the cosmic dangers that could befall us, but we possibly have the capacity to to thwart something like that with a, a comet impending towards Earth. There was that experiment not, not too long ago, I believe it was last year around October, where NASA sent a probe with the explicit intent to smash into, a, a, it was actually an orbiting body of a, the smaller asteroid and um, to see if they could knock it off course. And it turns out that they, they did. And they actually were able to see there was, they knocked it so hard that there was a bunch of debris that actually kind of crumbled off of it and knocked it off kilter. So it's a positive step towards being able to sort of re-maneuver any impending disastrous comets or asteroids away from us. What is it Leah, about the hard sciences that you love? I mean, it's fascinating to me, not enough for me to make it a career, but what is it, what is it about it that you love so much? You know, I think it's, it, it gives a sense of, philosophic or spiritual meaning, I think, in a deeper context, you know, we're such a small little blip in time and in existence. And the cosmos is so much bigger than us. Evolution is so powerful to get us to where we were today to be able to ponder these things. And I suppose I was always kind of a why kid. I was always very, very curious. Mm -hmm. And so that's why even though my my research professionally is in medical research, upstream medical research and, and technologic advancement, I love all sciences. And so that's why I, I've been sort of, I, I guess, positioned to explain them all from biology to space to chemistry, et cetera. Is, do you find it humbling? It's what I'm kind of hearing from you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and um, humbling, but also lucky, you know, when you look at sort of the, 
the history of the universe at large, you know, we sort of came into existence at a time in which, you know, the universe wasn't too young and too hot and radioactive and chaotic to where we would have burned up. And the universe is not so old that, you know, we don't see any more galaxies in the sky because that's something that's the fate of sort of the Milky Way is that the fabric of space-time is expanding at an accelerating rate. And so there is a cosmic horizon and after which we will no longer be able to see, you know, galaxies and things far away in our skies anymore. And so there will come a point in history where our vantage point will be very lonely because things will have passed beyond that horizon. And anybody that may evolve, any intelligent life that may evolve during that time may look up and see a very, very lonely sky. Whereas, you know, we have the James Webb telescope and we see all these deep field images and there are millions of galaxies that we've been able to see and it's fascinating and it, you know it makes you feel a little less alone but that won't be the the future at some point so we're at a very lucky sort of goldilocks time i think in universal history i mean is it a miracle that we're alive i mean that that life exists like this if everything kind of came together and we're here we're sitting here talking to each other Sure. It's a, it's a miracle or just like very, very extremely small chances. But, mm. you know, the, the interesting thing is that we have yet to be able to confirm that we're even alone in our own solar system. You know, there mm. are several moons, et cetera, that are actually really, really good candidates for being potential sources for life outside of this planet and um, Europa being one of them which is a moon of Jupiter. And it has oceans that are actually deeper than ours. And they are salty oceans like ours. They're fluid. Um, and there's a really good possibility that there could be microbes or maybe even some large multi-tentacle creature. We don't know. And so that's sort of one of our stops for looking for life outside the planet. Wow. There's lots of talk in the recent months, years about extraterrestrial life and visitations and things like that. Where do you stand on that? You know, I think that when you look at the staggering expanse of the universe and to think that we are the only ones that exist, I think is is undercutting really how expansive the universe truly is. Um, now, whether or not we have been contacted, I think, is sort of a point of conjecture. Mm. But, you know, I've seen some very compelling testimonies from pilots, et cetera. I've got pilots in my family that, that flew for the military. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. They say, yeah, we've seen things that are pretty inexplicable with, you know, maneuvering capabilities beyond, far beyond what we have. And, um, you know, I, I think that a, an advanced race would probably look at us and, and be interested to, to study us because we are very, very, I would say, primitive in our, mm. <laughs> in our technology in the grand scheme of things. So what role does politics play in science? I think that that politics at least as of late, unfortunately, has served to polarize the public and sort of pitted against its scientists. Um, you know, there was a, an era in American history wherein an entire population rallied around its scientists. And that was really sort of the age of the space race, right? An entire nation was gripped by our engineers trying to get us to the moon. And, you know, that sort of faded. Those heroes uh, being astronauts and scientists and mathematicians um, sort of gave way to now politicizing science for the sake of political gain. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's why people in my position as science communicators are so needed, you know, to help sort of dispel misinformation or conspiracy theory and let people know that scientists really are at our, our core. We are working for the public. You know, we have mm -hmm. the public in, in mind when we do everything that we do. And um, so politics, unfortunately, leverages sciences for gain. Uh, individualized gain, party gain, et cetera. But 
hopefully we can return to the space race era where that's we kind of operate hand in hand, right? Yeah, unfortunately, money does spoil a lot of these things. Now, I, I was born, I'm 55. I was born in the late 60s. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, everybody wanted to be an astronaut. Right, because we had just landed on the moon, and everybody wanted to, you know, be an astronaut, be a scientist, and boy, that just eventually in the '80s just kind of just went away. It really did. I'm not sure why. I, you know, it's science is difficult because there's been a, a problematic way of trying to make it sexy, right? Trying to make mm. it appealing, and a lot of it, I think, begins at our baseline education level and making science relatable, right? I think the most the biggest deterrent of, of children away from the sciences. And, you know, obviously that leads into adults pursuing science vocationally is that they don't feel that they can relate to it or it's too hard or it's something that they hate. And so one of my biggest points of pride in being a science communicator is the number of messages that I receive where people say, Hey, I failed science in high school or I hated it, but I found you. And now I found, I find myself seeking science out in the news. Mm. Or if I see something come up, I'm now interested in it because you have sort of sparked this new curiosity. And uh, that, I mean, I could ask for nothing better. Is science being taught here in the States K through 12, in your opinion? Um. I think it really depends on the school system. I think that there is a, a huge degree of scientific illiteracy, especially in underserved communities and, you know, like inner city neighborhoods, things like that, um, because they just don't have the resources. And unfortunately, we've sort of, to what I can see, we've been moving towards standardized testing, which has sort of sapped the passion from teachers, right? Because mm -hmm. they are only teaching to a set of exams. And so they don't have the ability, the resources or the, you know, I suppose, uh, motivation to teach beyond that and to teach passionately things that they want to teach. And so I think they end up losing students in the fray to that. How was your science uh, experience K through 12? Uh, you know, I had always loved science independently. I had a, a biology teacher. I, I took a lot of college courses in high school. At a, so I had a sort of AP college level teacher uh, in biology that was great and I think helped to kind of stoke that fire a little bit. Um, and uh, other than that, a lot of it was very self-directed, but I do think that I had the ability and I didn't necessarily go to phenomenal schools or private schools or boarding schools. I just went to public school. Right. Um, but I think that the teachers that I had did what they could with what they had. And I, I think that back then they were probably better funded. Are your parents scientists? No, <laughs> I am the only scientist in my family, even in my extended family. <laughs> so what was it, Leo? I mean, you said you kind of had exposure in grade school? No, I think I just always wanted to know more. I mean, um, one of the fun stories that I like to recount is that, you know, as children got older and they got into middle school and they were getting like their first girlfriends and boyfriends, I was raising brine shrimp to study the morphologic changes as they developed and looking at them under like a little plastic micros microscope. So I've just always been fascinated by the physical world. Absolutely fascinated. Wow. Wow. Fungal mycelia, what do we need to know about it? Oh, the mycelia, yeah. Um, so there is this very comprehensive network that we have recently begun to unpack, yeah. wherein there are these sort of like fungal offshoots. They almost look like little roots. And when you look at it, it looks almost like neural circuitry, right? These like very fine filaments that connect 
fungus to fungus or, you know, fungus to tree, or they sort of act as an intermediary connecting tree to tree. And it, it turns into this gigantic network forest wide, right? Wherever you see an aggregation of plants in a large area and, um, they can share nutrients. The, the fungus can transfer nutrients between plants. They can send SOS signals. So if there's insects or disease or something that's affecting one part of the forest, that information can get communicated to other parts of the forest as a warning signal. Um, sometimes, you know, parent trees can then communicate with their sort of offspring trees. And uh, it's it's fascinating. So the, the forest is very alive and it's very in communication with itself. And this is something that we've just begun to understand. So it's a very fascinating part of that field. I remember reading about it and it's amazing. It's all talking to each other. You know, uh, my my father is from is from Italy and the the big big earthquake uh, happened in the 90s and he was saying that morning all the dogs and the chickens were all barking and going crazy. They they knew something was coming. Yeah, I've experienced that too. I'm I'm from Southern California, so I've been yeah. through my fair share of earthquakes and you know, we would always have, that was a known thing. You know, you would sort of, the wildlife would start acting weird or the mm. dogs would start being kind of, you know, anxious. And we would always say, I bet there's an earthquake coming. And then sure enough, you know, maybe. And I think, you know, we have such a limited range of, of hearing compared to other animals, you know, like dogs have a very, a much greater expanse of frequencies they can hear. And part of me wonders if, you know, these tectonic plates as they sort of grind against each other during that process before they release the energy, uh, if they can hear that sort of subsonic grinding. And I'm, I'm sure if we could hear it, it would be terrifying. It would make me anxious too, <laughs> you know? So part of me wonders, can they hear that? I didn't even consider that. They can actually hear the grinding of the shells. Speaking of which, Africa is breaking apart. It is. It is. There are a couple of um, a couple of different plates there that are sort of in motion with one another. But uh, one of them has created this great rift that goes through much of eastern Africa. Yeah. And there is a very high likelihood that in, um, you know, a, a few hundred years to a thousand years that that will actually begin to form a new sea and it will break a chunk of Africa off into the Indian Ocean on that side. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. So you're, you're driving in a car one day and you say, you know, maybe somebody should write a book to kind of put all this together for people to read. And there are no stupid questions. And then I did. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have this very large repository. I mean, as a podcast host, you know, you, you want to have content on deck, right? It's super important. And um, so I have a repository of questions that are asked of me by my followers. And I have such a comprehensive list. I was like, man, somebody needs to take these and make a book because these, some of the simplest questions really do evoke the most elegant responses. And so it begs more time than I can put in in 90 seconds on Instagram. And so uh, in the same thought, I was like, yep, I should write that book. And I literally went home that day after work and uh, I Googled, how do you publish a book? <laughs> and embarked on that journey. And now here I am, an, an author. But I mean, you went and got an agent and you had to apply for it and it was, you know, it was, they, they got you and it was quite a process. And now it was released. It's doing quite well. It is. It's the, the people that have read it, love it. And I, I couldn't be more thankful. And, you know, I was able, luckily enough, and I'm fortunate enough to actually read my audiobook as well. And so I feel like I've been sort of spoiled on this debut of mine because <laughs> I was able to read it and, uh, you know, have a, a really, really solid audience rating, which I'm delighted by. Does singing to plants really help them grow? You know, 
Possibly. It's uh, it's sort of a, a hit or miss. There is something to be said for mechanical stimulation of plants helps them to grow. And you could say with enough sort of vibration from sound, you might be stimulating these mechanoreceptors on plants and, and forcing them to grow sturdier in a certain direction. Um, but also just the carbon dioxide in your breath might be slightly more beneficial mm. for photosynthesis in plants. They utilize that carbon dioxide to formulate form sugars along with you know, the energy they grab from photons. So uh, yeah, it could be there's, there's no direct linkage yet. But I think that there's a strong case that can be made. Sure. Definitely doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt at all. <laughs> and it gives you the added bonus of working on your singing skills. Exactly so. right. No matter what <laughs> level you're at. What do you what do you hope the reader comes away from, from reading the book? Well, you know, it's written very, it's a science text, but it is very kind of tongue in cheek. It's very sarcastic. So I, I hope that one, they come away with a little bit of fun. They groan a little bit. Some of the jokes, they laugh, um, but mostly they come away with a, a, great, a greater sense of awe than when they started. You know what I mean? Because some of the questions I think are, they were chosen because they're very common. And, you know, I think that again, the answers can be very elegant. And so I hope that they, they take at least one passage where, you know, they repeat it to a friend or it's a piece of knowledge that they can kind of lock away. And that sort of sparks their interest going forward in the sciences. When a cat purr, when a cat purrs, what actually is making the sound? So there is a sort of dual vibration of the larynx, which are, you know, it's musculature in the throat, as well as the diaphragm. And that's uh, the big muscle that drops into your stomach to help inflate the lungs and then helps collapse the lungs back. Um, and so there is sort of this uh, signal that gets sent to these two groups of muscles that causes them to contract in rapid succession. And so the reason that a cat's purring is actually constant in nature and you don't hear it stop to breathe is because that air passing past the larynx that's vibrating and against the diaphragm that's also vibrating uh, on inhalation and exhalation, you can hear the vibration as the breath gets disturbed. So it's one constant cycle of them just breathing through the, the vibration. Is there one of the hard sciences that you like most than the others? Sure. I mean, I, I love, I love biology, you know, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in I'm medicine and so like human physiology is deeply fascinating and pathophysiology. But one of the things that I love to study sort of in my off time is I love cosmology and astronomy and astrophysics mm. space is uh, like a second love of mine. And you can kind of see that thematically in my, in my, uh, my science videos, because I often cover space topics, you know, at the behest of the audience, but the, I do cover them sort of, I would say with enthusiasm. <laughs> you certainly do. Yeah. And you're really, really good at it. And you bring a lightness to it and um, you've got a great presentation about you. So it's really captivating and really easy to, to, to digest. Yeah. And I appreciate it. And I, I guess it would, would it be great if somebody saw one of the videos and wanted to learn more about it and went off and kind of did that? Is that your goal? Yeah, you know, and I've had plenty of people that have watched a video and they said, hey, you know, so I saw your video on deep sea creatures and I went and looked at something up and then I found this article and, you know, I, I now have this sort of cult following of people who will intermittently send me science articles that they found. And they're like, Hey, like I thought about you because I saw your video the other day. So here's something else. Or, uh, you know, somebody sent me information on, um, the, the Bennu mission that we just talked about the Osiris Rex mission. It actually two days ago brought back the samples from the surface of that asteroid. And, uh, so somebody sent me the thing. They're like, Hey, you know, I saw your video and like, here's, 
it got back. Like here are the samples, you know? So, so people do, I think that when they see it, you know, they're more apt to sort of listen or tune in or not, you know, click past or scroll down past the, the news article. Cause they have a primer at this point. Mm. When somebody says, I believe in science, what is your response to that? Um, I typically say that, you know, science is not really a belief. <laughs> it is, it is a, you know, a compendium of human knowledge that is self-perpetuating and self-correcting. Mm. And so it's not necessarily to be believed in more so is to be sort of proven and reproven and reproven over time. That's the entire nature. It's, it's not a dogma, right? It's a practice. And again, it's kind of what we talked about before the politicization kind of of it, which is, which is, uh, which is unfortunate. Now, growing up, you there wasn't a lot of kind of, well, there was Bill Nye that you mentioned. There was a couple of others where certainly no women to look forward to or look up to in, in science. Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I am a huge proponent of showing, you know, uh, underrepresented minorities in the field. A lot mm. of colleagues are like, what can I do to kind of help the cause more or less? And I'm like, you know, it just be visible be visible and more importantly, be relatable. I think that people have this idea that scientists sort of always wear a white coat and they just live and sleep and eat in laboratories and dungeons mm. somewhere. Um, but we're people, you know, we have, uh, I'm, I obviously have a, a big sleeve of tattoos and I have a nose ring. And um, I, I think it's really important to, to show people that scientists, scientists are just like everybody else, right? <laughs> just like everyone else. Absolutely. And they have a passion about something just like we all do. Uh, so how does DNA work, Leah? Oh, boy. So DNA is sort of uh, at its crux. It is a series of molecules that sort of code, I would say, not unlike computer coding, right? Um, they read like a book. So if DNA was a grand book, then at the level of, let's say, a gene, that would be like a chapter level. And then you get down to base pairs. And these are like individual words, right? And so the, I would say, sort of configuration of these molecules, depending upon how they're configured, in which order are they repeated, how many times are they repeated, etc. These formulate the sentences that eventually become the chapters that become the book that reads and codes to be the schematics that make up your body. Um, DNA codes to make proteins. That's all it does is it just is like a big machine that uh, that unfurls itself and it reads out the schematics to make all kinds of different proteins in your body. And those proteins do every single thing that you can imagine to operate you, to think, to feel, to digest everything. Um, and so at its base level, it is, I would say, the blueprints that, that make up you and I. Absolutely essential. And when, when they completed the whole genome study years ago, I mean, that was a big advancement, obviously, in, in science and biology. It was huge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just recently they, they finalized, you know, the rest of it. And um, because it's, it's such a staggering amount of information, you know, you think about your cells that most of the cells in the human body contain a nucleus and that's where the DNA is. And the DNA is so long it's six feet long, packed mm. into this little tiny nucleus inside your cell, thinner than a human hair and spooled up around these things called histones to sort of compact it down and, and get it crammed into the nucleus. But, you know, six feet long, that's tremendously long in your billions of cells. I mean, that's trillions of miles of DNA contained in your body right now. And that's a lot of information for coding. <laughs> absolutely amazing to be alive and uh, where, what does, what is the role of AI in science? Do you feel? 
So I think AI is, I th we have taken sort of a step back and I commend the developers of AI for saying like, hey, we should form a summit and maybe put some rules in place because mm -hmm. a lot of these things we don't know how they're currently operating. Like uh, ChatGPT, the, some of the developers were like, ah, we don't know how it's doing some of these things. And that I think begged a little bit of pause from developers, which is great. Um, but, you know, AI serves to help us with searching for algorithms in a way that is far more advanced than we can do as human beings. And there are some very big problems that we contend with globally, right? Um, chronic disease, like how do we cure cancer or environmental problems, food scarcity, water shortages, et cetera. These are very, very large problems that it would take us decades and decades to unpack and uncover just humans in a room spitballing. So what AI does is it formulates these gigantic, elegant algorithms, and it can help us solve some of these large problems in a very, very short duration of time um, and help us get to solutions a bit more efficiently and uh, effectively, if done right, if leveraged correctly. <laughs> Do you work with AI yourself? I don't work with AI. I have a ChatGPT account because I wanted to go in and see what all the hubbub was about. Yeah. Uh, and it's really cool. You know, you can ask it all kinds of questions and uh, it's it's awesome. But I, I myself do not yet work with AI. I think at some point we probably all will. I mean, mm. I, I suppose in a very minimalized standpoint, you know, my, I have an Android phone. And so Google, I have set up these very specific programs in the morning when I say, good morning, Google, it'll go through all of these things. It'll tell me about my schedule and the weather and read the news to me and everything. So nice. in a limited capacity, I've already sort of started, I guess, incorporating it into my day to day, but and just to give anybody who's listening an idea, it, you also go to another subject, one of your videos, Tattoo Ink. Mm. Tattoo Ink is very fascinating. Uh, we recently sort of found out that the reason that Tattoo Ink stays where it is, right? Because the immune system is designed to sort of clear out foreign bodies. So if our immune system is doing its job, you would expect that Tattoo Ink would last maybe a couple of years. And right. at that point, it would sort of get shuttled into the the bloodstream into the lymphatic system, then it get cleared out of your body. So the question was, why does tattoo ink stay where it's put? You know, it gets blurred a little bit over time, but more or less it stays pretty local. And what we found is that um, there are these cells called macrophages and they are sort of like the garbage men of the human body. They're your first defense when there's a foreign body that, that makes its way inside of you. And they, their job is just to consume stuff. They just eat it. They engulf things and they break it down and then they move on and go about their life. But the ink compounds inside of tattoos cannot be broken down by these macrophages. And so macrophages will come and consume the ink molecules, try to break it down, eventually die because they can't, and then just leave the ink in the same place. And then more macrophages will come and try to consume it, and then they can't and they die off. And so it's this perpetuating cycle where this, there are cells that are kind of always protecting the ink molecules because they're always inside of these macrophages that can't break them down. And so it's also sort of preserving the the molecules as well. So they kind of stay stuck in place. They never really get transported outward. Is there a particular area in science that you don't know well that you wish you knew better? That's a great question. Uh, so many. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, Quantum physics is uh, it's sort of a brave new horizon realm of science that is exceptionally dense. There are so many different theories um, and, you know, sort of different flavors of the same theory over and over ad nauseum. And, um, you know, I, I understand it in a way to if you were to put me in a room with a like a quantum theorist, 
I would be able to hold my own and know some of it. But as soon as they got into some of those like calculus derivatives and things, oh uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be out. <laughs> I'd tap out. That's uh, so I, I know enough to get me in trouble, but you know, I think uh, I can't remember a famous theoretical physicist said uh, with respect to string theory, for instance, he said, um, if you think you understand string theory, then you know nothing about string theory. Uh. <laughs> so, so, you know, I know enough to get in trouble, but not enough. Uh, I'm very Socratic. I'm like, I, I only know what I don't know, right? <laughs> I saw an exercise once with ChatGPT where somebody asked it, you know, explain quantum physics to me as if I was a fifth grader. Oh, how did that go? It, went, it started talking about kind of teddy bears and the teddy bear kind of passes and it's here, but it can also be there. It did a really good job, actually. Wow, that's phenomenal. I'll have to ask ChatGPT and see what it says. <laughs> yeah, as if I'm a fifth grader. Yeah, it's 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 pretty, pretty cool. So, Leah, I started my business back in the 90s and uh, I was working way too, way too much and not paying attention to myself. I got myself up to 340 pounds by not eating correctly. I know you work oh, out. Oh, wow. Yeah, you power lift yeah. So I wasn't, I was treating my body very poorly. And, uh, doctor said to me, my daughter has just been born. You know, if you don't lose this weight, you're not going to see her graduate. So, you know, that's all I needed to hear. I got myself to this point. I'm going to get myself out, spent the next seven, eight months, lost about 130 pounds. And when people ask me that, I, excuse me, when I tell people that I always see it like, you know, what's the secret? Like there's some kind of secret that I'm going to give them. That's and so my answer is just one word, people discipline, right? That's how absolutely. That's absolutely. How so, and congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Thank it's you. Phenomenal. Yeah, so 46 inch waist. I'm a 32. Now I have got pictures of all the clothes I throw. I feel great. And lose, by the way, it's just not a finishing line. It's something you just got to change. I see people lose weight and unfortunately get it back. I wonder how discipline plays a role in your life. Well, you know, when you have a busy schedule, right, I, I have two, I guess you could say careers, really, the science communication, which includes uh, writing books, it includes, you know, the, the public interface and the videos, and then obviously my nine to five uh, science gig. You know, I have dueling calendar systems and things like that. And you sort of you have to be disciplined in order to make your deliverables, right, your deadlines for turning in book manuscripts or your deadlines at work. But I think there's also something that I've tried to be better at lately, which is the discipline of giving yourself time back, right? Because you can work yourself to the bone, but ultimately if you're an unhealthy person, it will, you know, diminish your ability to actually go and do the things you want to do. And so part of that discipline is also scheduling time, uh, you know, like to go to the gym, to give back to me, to unplug, to do something not cerebral, right? Because I live science nine to five and then five to nine again in the off hours. So that has been important, the discipline to turn off every once in a while. What do you do that's non-cerebral? Oh, uh, you know, I, I, lifting is pretty non-cerebral. You can sure. turn off, turn it off and just go. Yeah. Um, I, I very infrequently watch trash TV, but I, I mean, I love a good binge show i mean you're talking like you're talking uh like love is blind or just something that you can just turn off and just have in the background and you just melt into the couch and uh, you don't have to think about anything mm. <laughs> it just feeds you entertainment that is nice to turn off like that almost get off the off the grid as a youth when you, you were getting the science all at that age did you still kind of view yourself as a disciplined person um you know I don't know that I saw myself as being disciplined. I, I had always done 
everything. I, I was mm. in student government. I was a varsity athlete. I was wow. taking college level courses. Uh, you know, I was involved in school and, you know, part of it is just this desire to sort of excel. But then another part of it is that I, I had sort of a troubled home life. And so I think it was, even though it was subconscious, it was sort of a means of escapism, right? Mm -hmm. If I was excelling in an environment where people were encouraging me and, you know, I was getting good feedback um, through sports, et cetera, then that was sort of feeding a need that I wasn't getting at home, you know? Hmm. So I, I talk about this quite frequently that I almost sort of owe a lot of my success to a troubled childhood because, you know, without it, I don't know that I would have been as hungry and had as much of a drive to do as well as I did. Mm. And so. continue to do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's now pathologic. It's yeah. <laughs> ingrained. It's ingrained in my being. In, into your DNA, perhaps. Ex exactly. Exactly. Hardwired. <laughs> what motivates you, Leah Elson? I think honestly, the notion that I am not a permanent installation on this earth and mm -hmm. that I would like to leave a legacy of having inspired somebody to do something where that it was go back to school, pursue sciences, something, or bring joy to somebody or leave an impact on the human condition or with human beings uh, in, in a way that only I could right? in a way that is, that is me at my most self-actualized and the gifts that I've been given and, and utilize that to do something better for somebody else. Oh, that, that's absolutely wonderful. That's the impact and legacy. What, what a, what a wonderful motivation. How do you measure success? Oh, that's a really good question. I think in my day job, the success is have I impacted patient lives, you know, this year, this day, this week, um, whichever time metric. And, uh, you know, in my personal life success is, you know, did somebody learn something from me? Did somebody enjoy something? Did somebody glean some sort of motivation from me doing something? You know, uh, I've got several people that have sent me messages over the years, many, many people that have said, Hey, uh, because of you, I went back to school. I was scared mm -hmm. to do it. And I'm an adult and I have kids now and I didn't think it was possible, but I went back and I did it because I look up to you. And um, so for me, that's success, you know, paying it forward and um, shining a light into what is possible for people. I mean, it's amazing to me. You work so hard and, you know, you have this full time, you do something that you love, but you spend the extra hours doing what you're doing now and putting these videos out and trying to make impact on people. You're just not kind of keeping it to yourself. I think that's the trait of a remarkable person. I think that, so, that wants to, you have this knowledge and you want to share it. Look how cool this is about leaky oceans and about, you know, talking about the Oppenheimer movie and what's realistic about that. And, you know, doing these things on your own time with your, with your, oh, well, hello there. I mean, I, I see it and I say, well, hello, let's go. What's, what, and I read it and let's, let's learn about this. I mean, it, it's absolutely great. And I, I love it. I, I wish you success. I want to continue what you're doing. Thank you so much for your time today. How can we get in touch with you? Anybody who's listening? Sure. So I'm very Googleable. So if you Google Leah Elson, you'll find everything from my publications to my social media, et cetera. Um, my, uh, my social media handles are... <laughs> It is gnarly by nature. Nature has a preceding G that's silent. Don't ask me why that is. Um, I obviously yeah. never thought that, you know, like, hey, I'm going to do science communication and it's going to blow up. I just, I just made a clever name because I thought that I was funny. And now it's become a thing that I'm locked into. <laughs> 
Um, but I don't, I could change it, but I don't want to. I think it's funny. Um, so gnarly by nature, or you can literally just search for me on most of your social media platforms, Leah Elson, you'll find me. <laughs> yeah. L E A H E L S O N.com. And you can, yeah, but you're right. I always saw gnarly by nature, but you're right. There's that extra G before the nature. And I didn't notice it, but uh, yeah, a lot of people, some people do and some people don't, but when they do, they're like, is that a silent G? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Silent G. So silly. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. It was great. Maybe one day we'll, if we're ever face to face, we can have a cup of coffee and finish or continue the Uh, conversation. Of course. I was delighted to be here. Thank you so much for asking. You be well. Have a great day. You as well. Bye now. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Podcast information, the video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. Audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider $5, $10, or $20 a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. There's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? $25, $50, $100, $500, $1,000, $5,000. You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pins Discipline Conversations.